I'm delighted and excited for another opportunity to share with you something from God's Word today. Uh, believe it or not, uh, my goal is to, number one, I want to be uh, factual. I want to be true to what God's Word says. And then to the best of my humble ability, I want to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, I read something to myself uh, every time I step into a pulpit. And I need to add, put on your glasses. That, that would help. This is a little story that was told years ago by the great uh, W.A. Criswell uh, when he came to Dallas Seminary and spoke in chapel. He said, the modern theologians, Barth, Bonhoeffer, Bruner, Boltmann, Tillich, they met the Lord Jesus. And the Lord asked these famed and illustrious theologians, who do men say that I am? And they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And some even say that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then the Lord said to the theologians, but who do you say that I am? And Barth, and Bonhoeffer, and Bruner, and Boatman and Tillich, they chorused back their learned answer. Thou art the ground of being. Thou art the leap of faith into the impenetrable unknown. Thou art the existential, unphrasable, unverbalized, unpropositional confrontation with the infinitude of inherent subjective experience. And the Lord looked at them and said, Huh? <laughs> I pray that uh, that will not be your response to what the Lord has uh, brought before us today. Uh, I've been collecting for many years uh, a file on questions that demand an answer. I've never preached on any of these, and so... Uh, even though I was planning on doing something else for today, uh, early in the week, the Lord said, it's time. And so I went to that file and I read through many of the questions that I had pulled from Scripture. And this one is the one he said, speak on this one. And it comes from the book of Job. Now, I know that for some of you, you're saying, is that Job or Job? Or is that in the Bible? Yeah, there's a book in the Bible called Job, just before Psalms. And uh, it's an ancient book. Uh, it uh, talks about a man named Job who lived uh, way back, perhaps uh, even before uh, Abraham. And uh, we're not sure just who wrote it, other than God himself, through the, the mind of a human author. It could have been Job. It could have been Moses. But uh, it's a book that is just rich with theological understanding of God and of man in the relationship that exists between a righteous, holy God and a sinful mankind. Job, by God himself, was said to be a righteous man. He wasn't perfect, but he was righteous in that the commitment of his life was to walk in obedience to the ways of God himself. And if you are familiar with the story, and I'm not going to take a lot of time, one day Satan came to God and said, you know, the reason he's so goody-goody is because you're his Santa Claus, and you give him so much. Take it away and see what will happen. And to make a short story even shorter, perhaps, God said, all right, do it. I'll give you permission. And... His possessions were taken away. His family was taken away. And then finally, his own health was taken away. And Satan's premise was, he'll curse you. Without the goodies, there's no motivation to serve you. And God's proposition was, he doesn't serve me because of what I give him. He serves me because of who I am. I'm his God, and there's no one like me. And so God allowed this test to take place. We know about it. We read it in the book. 
The one person who really never knew about it was Job. He had no idea why this was all happening. But it all happened to him. And in chapter 31, he uh, is trying to respond to one of his friends. He had three of them that came forward to help him. You know, friends, they mean well, don't they? But sometimes friends just don't really get it. And these three friends said, Job, here's the bottom line. This is happening to you because you've done something wrong. God just doesn't pick on people for no reason at all. You, you're a sinner. You've offended him. You've broken his law. And that's why these things are happening. And Job, who was a righteous man, he knew he wasn't perfect, but he knew that he wasn't the kind of person they thought he had to be to have all these things happen. And he's trying to defend himself in chapter 31. And, uh, hey, I got something else I got to pull. I found my glasses. Now I got to get this thing. And uh, in Job 31, and I'll read verses 13 to verse 15 to give it a little bit of context. He says, if I have despised the claim of male or female slaves... When they file a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises and when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Job's argument is that I'm not dumb. I know that God knows what's going on in my life. And if I deliberately ignore a legitimate complaint from my servants, if I just tell them, you know, hey, deal with it or whatever. Uh, if I despise their claim, meaning I reject their claim, I want nothing to do with it, then what could I do when God arises? That word arise is the word that means to visit. Um, uh, it speaks of God intervening in the affairs of men. When God intervenes in human affairs, that's the word. He arises. What then could I do when God arises and when he calls me to account? Uh, in the King James translation, that whole phrase is simply the one word, he visited, he visiteth. But it has the idea, he arises, he intervenes in my affairs and he calls me to account for the things I have done. He says, what will I answer him? So Job, in the process of defending himself, Job basically was, in chapter 31, he, he's using what they call negative argumentation. Uh, at least uh, 19 times in chapter 31, I think I, I, got, I got them all, the, ver the word if is used. He's raising a, a hypothesis. And then most of the time, he'll then give the corresponding uh, answer to it. Uh, he does it here. If I have despised the claim of male or female sl slaves or servants, he's saying if. I'm, he's not saying I did, but he's saying for the sake of argument, if I did this, when they filed a complaint against me, then what could I do when God intervenes in my affairs? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him, meaning the servant? And the same one fashions us, for fashioned us in the womb? Job is acknowledging that he knew he was accountable to God to be a good steward of the resources that were under his authority. He knew that both he and his servants were made by God. He knew that God was omniscient and he would know when Job sinned. Have you ever thought of that? We were talking about this at the elders meeting the other night. Weren't we? I think we were. We, we were talking about sometimes, you know, we think we fool people. I stopped and got a donut and my wife didn't. I forgot you were here. Uh, Scott wanted to stop and get a donut. But, but there are times when I will do something I know she doesn't want me to do. And I'll throw away the empty wrappers and all that and thinking, boy, I got away with it. She doesn't know. And that may be true. She may not know, although most of the time she does know. She's got spies everywhere. 
But then it hits me. God knows. It's, it's, it's not a matter of can I keep it from my wife or keep it from my children or keep it from the elders. The real issue is can I keep those kind of things away from God? And the answer is no, dummy. God is omniscient. He knows everything you do. And Job is saying, if I'm doing things wrong, what am I going to do when God intervenes in my affairs? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? I can't lie to him. I can't say, oh, no, that's a, that's a false report, God. You, you need to check your resources. His resources are always pretty good because he was there. He heard it firsthand. And sometimes we forget about that. We forget that we could fool a lot of people some of the time, maybe most of the time. But you can never fool God. And that's a part of his argumentation. But that question is the one I want to lift out and apply it to us this morning. When he calls you to account, what will you answer him? And there are, I think, at least three contexts when that will be true to, uh, to one of us or all of us at some point in our life. The first one that I want us to look at, this question must be answered by unredeemed sinners at the judgment bar of God. The scriptures say in Hebrews 9, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, meaning reckoning, accounting. Now, to condense a lot into a little, let me say that God has offered a way of redemption for anyone who will believe. When his son Jesus Christ went to the cross, he wasn't dying just for the bad people. He was dying for all the people because we all have inherited Adam's nature and we evidence that fallen nature by our own sin, compounding it. That's why Paul said to the Romans, for all have sinned, past tense. And day by day by day, we fall short of the glory of God. We're incapable of glorifying the God who made us because of sin. And God said, I will send my son, and I will put your sin on him, and I will punish him fully, completely, totally. The theologians say God was propitiated. He was satisfied that everything that was due because of our sin was dealt with when his son was on that cross. And now God is free to show mercy and grace and pardon to the one who believes. But what if you're here today and you're saying, I haven't believed, maybe later, but not now. I'm having too much fun, or I just don't see it as a, a big issue right now. But that's something I'll deal with when, when the time is right. And what if today is the last day you spend on this earth? What if he visits you today? And what if he comes and says, I'm holding you accountable? What are you going to say? Well, if we can look forward a little bit... In the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, after the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years on earth with the church as his bride, God is going to have a time of judgment. He's going to intervene in the affairs of men. And John saw in verse 11 a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for him, for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, books were opened. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So John sees this throne 
It's the throne of God. It's a throne of judgment. And he sees a resurrection. There'll be a resurrection at that time of all the wicked dead from Adam until that time. Any man or woman or young person who understands right from wrong, anybody who has left this life without putting their faith and trust either in the promise God made about Christ or in Christ and what he accomplished at the the cross. God has never had more than one way of salvation. It has always been by faith. In the Old Testament, their faith looked forward to what God promised he would do, to send the Redeemer. We look back to the fact that the Redeemer came, Jesus Christ, the God-man, And he went to Calvary and he atoned for our sin. He himself said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And then he offered up his physical life. And he was buried. And on the third day he was raised from the dead to vindicate the fact that first of all, he is God, the God-man. And also to vindicate that God has indeed accepted all that he did at Calvary to fully pay the debt that mankind owes. And the only problem now is for man to believe according to the promise that God has given. But if you're one of the ones who will not believe now, then you're going to one day stand before this great white throne judgment. And the books are opened, it says. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The books, I think, contain, this is your life, everything you've done. Some of you people are too young to remember a president called Richard Nixon. Some of us don't want to remember a president called Richard Nixon, maybe. But there was a president called Richard Nixon, and he got himself in deep trouble. And he had a habit of taping everything, every conversation, everybody that came into the Oval Office. He had all that on tape. They said, get rid of it, Mr. President. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. He said, no, no. He said, that will vindicate me one day if necessary. Well, what he was trusting to vindicate him was actually the evidence that convicted him and forced his resignation from office. There'll be people who will stand before God and they'll be held accountable. And their answer will be, well, I've lived a good life. Uh, I went to church as much as I could. I I gave money to charities. I served on committees. Uh, I I was baptized. Uh, I was all these different things. And they're hoping that their deeds will vindicate them before God. And actually, those same very deeds will be the basis of condemnation. It will prove that you are an unrighteous person. And then that book is available, the book of life. And that book will be open, and your name's not there. And so the books vindicate that you deserve eternal judgment. The book of life is evidence that you never availed yourself to Jesus Christ as the one who died for you. And as a result, it gets worse. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. The death, death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. One day, if you leave this life, without knowing Jesus Christ, there'll be a day of accounting. And God's going to say, what will you say? And if you say, well, I'm a good person, I've lived a good life, and I'm better than a lot of other people I know, God's going to say, but your name's not in the Lamb's book of life. You refuse to take advantage of the grace that was offered to you, and you'll have to endure the judgment, which is the eternal lake of fire. It's important to realize, some of you say, well, I'm close. I've heard the gospel. I understand it. I'm just not ready 
and I say this out of compassion for you, to be almost saved is to be totally lost. It only counts in horseshoes to be close. You can't be close. You're either saved or lost. And what it is that puts you into the family of God is your willingness to believe. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. When he calls you to account, what will you answer him? I pray that you won't be there, because whatever answer you give him, it, it won't be good enough. The only answer is that my name's in that book of life because I put my trust in your son Jesus. And when he went to the cross, he died for me. And I trust him alone, by faith alone, as the one who can redeem me from my sin. There's a second group. This question not only must be answered by the unredeemed sinners at the judgment bar of God, this question must be answered by church saints at what the scriptures call the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not a judgment to determine whether or not you're going to heaven. Uh, that's determined by whether or not you've put your faith and trust in Christ. This will be an examination of your life as a Christian to determine what is worthy of reward and what is not. It has nothing to do with whether you're going to go to heaven. It has to do with what has your life accomplished in terms of glorifying the God who loved you and sent his son to die for you. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. He said, we're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul is saying, I'd rather be there. I've seen it. You know, Paul saw it once. He said, I'd rather be there than be here. Uh, Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I'd rather be there, but until that day comes and I'm still here, I want to be pleasing to him. That's my ambition. Whether I'm there or here, I want to be pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Some refer to it by the Greek title, the Bema. It was that elevated place in the uh, Olympic Games of ancient times. And the one who finished first, he would have the highest place of honor. And then the others would be below him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Or we could say useful or useless. He speaks in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And this fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built uh, upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. I've always wondered... Are there people who can't tell the difference between 
gold, silver, and precious stones as opposed to wood, hay, and straw? I'd like to meet them because I got a ton of gold uh, out behind my house that I'd like to sell to you. (laughs) But really, what is it that necessitates fire to tell the difference between gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw? Well, when you put fire to those things, wood, hay, and straw are consumed and they disappear as chaff, gone. Fire actually purifies gold and silver. And precious stones, it it endures fire. Those things are eternal in value. But the Lord is using this analogy because he says, but you can't tell the difference between what is eternal and what is temporal until it's put to the fire. And I think that he's telling us that there's something that can't be seen externally. Maybe it's motive. There are a lot of people who do good things, but we don't know why do you do that. Do you do that because you love the Lord and you want to honor him and glorify him? Or do you do that because you just love being in the limelight? You love being singled out and praised. Look what Brother John did. Look what Sister Sue did. Uh, And only God can determine the motives of our heart. That's one of the reasons why the judgment seat of Christ takes place. It is to determine what really had eternal quality, things that were done for him, as opposed to things that were done really for ourselves. But nevertheless, some people will receive a reward if those works remain. They're verified to be eternal, done for the glory of God. Some will be burned up, and he shall suffer loss. Doesn't mean that you don't go to heaven anymore. You're still God's child, but it means that you've lost out on a great capacity to glorify God. Because I think that once the rewards are given to all the saints, we don't walk around like military people do with all of our things on our chest. Guadalcanal. And, and, and I need to change it because I'm not demeaning what our military accomplishes. But I'm just saying that we're not going to be walking around with all of our our pins and medals. I think that we're going to take all those things and lay them at the feet of Christ. And that's our way of saying these things could never have been done were it not for the fact that you empowered us by your Spirit. This is the work of divine ability, not human ability. And the purpose of these things it is to glorify God himself. Old Dr. Pentecost, who uh, taught, uh, taught us so many things in, in seminary, he used to try to use the illustration of a mighty chandelier. Ima- imagine a chandelier hanging from the ceiling instead of that camera gadget thing there. And it's, it's just incredible. It, it's it takes up a good part of the room and it's got thousands and thousands of bulbs and they're all burning. That's the glorified church. But some of those bulbs are 25 watt and some of them are 50 watt and some are 75 watt and some are 100 watt and some are 500 watts. They have different capacities to glorify God. And if, if those things are not true, I don't understand why it is, what's our motivation to serve him? We serve him because we love him and we want to be obedient to scripture, but we also want to glorify him. Everything God made, the purpose was to glorify him. That's why only biblical Christianity or Christianity in, in a general sense, we're the only ones that really tell people, go out there and explore uh, the ancient peoples didn't, oh, you, you'll offend the gods. You know, leave them alone. Offer uh, sacrifices to them. But we're told the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Now, I'm not saying I approve of billions and billions of dollars to go to Pluto or whatever. But everywhere we have gone, for whatever reason, and they tell you, usually the reason for going into outer space, they're trying to find life. 
somewhere other than here. And it's kind of ironic that they could spare all that money and just ask us. And we would tell them there is none. It's, it's here. God made the earth a special place. And he put living things on it. And he put an oxygen canopy to sustain it. And that can't happen anywhere in outer space. If you question that, I challenge you to go out there and take off your helmet. And you'll discover that that's a nasty place. I mean, it's not nasty in a sense. It's, it's God's creation. But it doesn't sustain human life. We are here. And this is where his work uh, was accomplished. And so I asked the question to you. One day when you're with him, either by natural death or if we are the generation that witnesses the coming of Christ to take the church away and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he says, what's your answer to the question of uh, what you've done? I'm asking you. Are you going to say, well, basically, Lord, I, I didn't do much. I, I trusted your son, and I'm grateful for that. I'm glad to have life. But I just kind of enjoyed myself knowing that you know, one day I'd be here. And Is that the way you want it? Or do you want the Lord to praise you because you invested your life in honoring him and serving him? How would you feel if he said, why did you throw away so many opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. People you know, not strangers, but work associates or family or neighbors. Why is it that you always found a, an excuse why you couldn't do that? Uh, things like that. Now, I don't know all that's going to happen. I, I haven't been there yet. But I do know that there'll be reward and there'll be suffering loss. Some people will have a life that was just committed to honoring Jesus in so many ways. Some people will, as they say in the old neighborhood, they'll be there by the skin of their teeth. Uh, they're, they're children who never developed an obedient lifestyle in terms of how they serve Christ. Well, that, there's, there's a whole lot more, but I've got to move along. Uh, people are going to turn off the power at a certain time. And there's a trap door somewhere here, they told me, and I haven't found it yet. But there's a third group of people that I think have to answer this question. And it's all men. That's generic. That's all men, women, children. We all are going to have to answer that question at various times in our lives. Now. Between now and when we go to heaven, our life on this earth, there may be times when God is going to intervene in your life. And he's going to hold you accountable. What are you going to say? Uh, I thought of Galatians 6, verse 7, where Paul told the Galatians, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. In terms of all the good things that God has promised to his children. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that uh, I think ought to make all of us feel a little uneasy. Paul has been laying it on the Corinthian church because they were a messed up church. It's amazing. Most people would say that they weren't believers, not with the things they were doing. And yet when Paul addressed them, he addressed them as saints by calling. Uh, he made every indication that these people knew him, knew Christ. But they were living in sinful ways. There was incest going on in the church and favoritism and, and divisions of all kinds. And in verse 31 of chapter 11, in the context of the Lord's table, he says, before you partake, you need to get things straight. You need to 
cleanse your heart before God so that you come to the table with a, a clean and pure heart. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Now, he's not using sleep in terms of slumber. He's using sleep as a term for death. He's used it before. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. So he's saying that the reason these people are weak and sick and a number of them sleep is that they have been judged. God has intervened in their affairs. And he's called them to account. And they didn't have a legitimate answer to defend what was going on in their life. And so he took them out. And some he gave them illness to deal with, uh, weaknesses. Some he just took them home. I call that spiritual uh, AWOL. Uh, He said, look, if you're not going to honor me, I'll remove you so that you don't profane me. If you're not honoring me with your life, then I'm not going to just let you continually uh, profane me with your life and shame me and be a hindrance to the integrity of the gospel message. And that's what happens. Every time a preacher goes rogue, I was reading the other day about this guy, Ball, who left his pastorate, Southern Baptist pastor, and now he's rejected the authority of Scripture. He's saying that, why are we allowing this book to govern our lives after all these thousands of years? Well, the answer is because it's the Word of God. That's the answer. But he thinks that everything's up for grabs now. He's coming to Birmingham, by the way. He's going to have a seminar because I think he pastored here. And he wants to come back. And and people are thronging to him. Why are they thronging to him? Because, man, he's preaching liberation. We don't have to deal with the Scriptures as God's Word. And it's an authority that we must deal with in our life or face discipline. And the highest of all discipline is death itself. If we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we're judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. I am sure that there are examples of this throughout history. Uh, The problem is, other than God and that person, it'd be difficult to know. I mean, we shouldn't go around and if somebody gets sick and dies, we shouldn't say, boy, God took them, must be something going on. I'm not advocating that at all. But even in Scripture, there were times when God intervened in the human affairs and held his servants accountable. One of them is David in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. And that's when he had his immoral escapade with Bathsheba. And it wasn't enough that he took another man's wife. But then, as the commander-in-chief of the army, he told the, uh, the uh, military guys, he said, look, tomorrow when y'all are getting ready to have a frontal attack, uh, I want y'all to pull back, and don't, but don't give the order to, to Uriah the Hittite. That was Bathsheba's husband. I want y'all to withdraw, but don't tell Uriah and just leave him out there by himself. And he was, he was killed. Now that was murder. That was premeditated murder on David's part. Plus he was being immoral. He was an adulterer. Uh, and after this is happening, in the first four verses of Second Samuel 12, uh, Nathan tells David a story. He said, there was a man who had more money than, than, than uh, Donald Trump. I mean, this guy was loaded. And uh, he had everything. And he had somebody coming to be a guest at his home for dinner. But instead of uh, getting one of his sheep and, and killing it and cooking it, he went to his neighbor who was poor as a church mouse. He only had one sheep, one little female lamb. And he went and took that one and killed it to feed his guest. And uh, finally, after he tells him the story, 
It says, verse 5 and 6, David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. He took one and you'll give him four. Because he did this thing and had no compassion. I mean, David is just outraged at a story like that. That guy should be put to death and he ought to make restitution. And then immediately Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're that guy. You got everything. You got money. You got land. You got everything. God himself began to talk. He said, I anointed you king over Israel. How many people have ever been anointed by God to be a king over any country, much less the chosen people? I delivered you from the hand of Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. You had everything, and I would have given you even more if, if you if you had talked to me about it. Why, verse 9, have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Answer me. David doesn't have an answer. He's being held accountable. What's he going to say? You know, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, I don't know what else, what else he could say. He can't deny it. It's true. Now therefore, God says, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And you've taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he shall be with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And by the way, that, that prophecy that... Uh, the evil would come to his house and I'll, I'll raise up evil against you from your own household. I'll even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. That was fulfilled in part by Absalom, his son, when he lay with David's concubines in chapter 16. When he calls me to account, what will I answer him? David felt sorry. He, he, he repented. But a lot of damage came to him and to his kingdom. Um, what's going on in your life? If God were to intervene right now in your affairs and hold you accountable... Are there things that you could say, Lord, I'm doing this for you, teaching a class, being part of a grow group, going out and sharing my faith, in, in the Word every day, trying to say, Lord, you know, as I master the Word, let the Word master me. Or are you going to say, well, Lord, uh, I've just been kind of doing whatever I feel like doing. And you know, the church is so carnal these days, nobody really seems to care. That's one reason why I love this church. We care. And if people are just walking apart from God, we want to intervene on behalf of God to help people come back to an obedient walk of faith. Because anything less than that will never benefit you, and it will damage Christ himself and this portion of his body. It's his body. This is his church. And how many churches are people avoiding like the plague because they're saying God's, God doesn't dwell in that place and it's growing like crazy. We're not the only one left, but we are getting more and more special 
in terms of what our priorities are, to honor God's Word, to teach it, proclaim it, and to walk according to it, and to have a a presence outside, we want to go out there and tell people the good news. If you found the cure to cancer, would you just say, well, you know what? I've discovered it. Time to go to bed. No, you want to shout it from the housetops. You've got the cure for cancer. You want the world to know. Well, listen, in Jesus Christ, we have the cure for eternal death. Men do not have to experience the second death in the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment. They can have eternity with God in heaven, glorifying Him with all that is going to be a part of eternity. And we don't know the half of it yet. We know a little, but there's going to be so much. I've told this many, many times, but the day my mother died, she lay there just as quiet as she could be, wasn't talking, eyes closed. And all of a sudden, she just started trying to, she was trying to get up out of bed and reach, reach, reach. I said, Mama, what, what is it? What do you see? Are you seeing something that I can't see? Tell me. Maybe I can write a book, you know, and ha- have a retirement account. <laughs> she opened her eyes and turned her head to where I was. And she said, it's not your turn. You'll have to wait your turn. Now, I'll have to wait till heaven to find out what she meant by that. But I'm convinced that she was seeing where she was going. God was saying, Alma, I'm going to give you a glimpse. There it is. They're getting the, the parade route set up, getting ready to have a parade. Alma's coming. She loved parades. Anybody from New Orleans loves parades. St. Patrick's Day, Mardi Gras, <clears throat> Veterans Day. Uh, we'll do anything for a parade. But one day when you're there before him, what are you going to tell him? Well, there's, there's one more quickly. I, uh, I wanted to deal, well, here it is. The deception of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. It actually begins in chapter 4. It begins when it says, The congregation of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them, and with great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for all who who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, and who owned a track of land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, he sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself and with his wife's full knowledge. So she's a partner. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. God intervened in the affairs of Ananias. And he flunked the test. And God took him home. Three hours later, they got a hold of Sapphira. They did the same thing. They asked her about the land and what portion of it was given, what portion of it was not. In verse 9, then Peter said to her, Why is it that you've agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. I can't tell you when these things are happening. All I can say is, 
if you are honoring the Lord and trying to serve him with a pure heart, you don't have to worry about things like that. Just like if you're driving down a freeway doing 95 miles an hour, every time you see a white car or a dark car or any car or a flashing light, what's your first thought? Be honest. (laughs) They got me. If you're driving 70 on cruise control and all these things are happening, so what? He's after somebody else. He's not after me. Why would he want me? I'm not doing anything. You know, so walk in obedience. And you don't have to worry about these things. If he does come, he's coming to take you home. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Let me leave you with three applications and I close. Number one, to anyone here today who's never put their faith and trust in Christ, today needs to be the day. You can't risk tomorrow. You, don't, you may not have tomorrow. And as I said earlier, to be almost saved is to be totally lost. Number two, to believers, we will give an account of our stewardship one day. So don't squander opportunities to serve the master. He wants obedient servants who will just serve him as he brings opportunities into our life. And number three, to all of us, it's in the book. Disobedience brings discipline, and God uses all kinds of ways. Don't get caught by his intervention when you're in disobedience. Don't risk the discipline that God might bring into your life. I would tell my children, You know, if you obey me, you'll never have to worry about what kind of a discipline I give. But if you're constantly disobeying me, it ought to be in your mind. What's going to happen when dad finds out? And that's not a good thought. May God give us the right motive to serve him, knowing that one day we will have to give an account for our faith and for the obedience of a Christian life that's well-lived until the day he comes for us. Father, I do thank you for the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. I'm so thankful, Father, that he had to be more than just an innocent man. He had to be the eternal God, a God-man, so that the value of his death was of infinite value to accommodate every one of us who has ever lived on this earth as a part of humanity. Thank you, Father, that the gospel is simple. It is faith in Christ alone, faith alone, in him alone. We thank you that even children can comprehend the need to come to Christ. And we pray that things like the camp and all of our other children ministries will do just that, help bring these children to an understanding of their need to make Jesus their Savior. I pray, Lord, that none of us leave today with any doubt or with an attitude of, I want to do it, but not today. Father, may today be the day when you impress upon them that salvation is of the Lord. If there are people who are thinking that salvation is by what man does, convict their heart to the folly of such thinking and drive them on their knees to the cross where they see that there's a Savior and He can be their Savior by trusting that what He accomplished is all that was needed to give us eternal life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.